Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. Welcome to a new season of Quirks and Quarks, and we're kicking off with our Science in the Field special. For many scientists, summer is a special time. Not because they take vacations. They're working hard. It's special because it's field season. I love field work. It brings me back to my summer camp days as a child, and it's, it's quite a playground. This is a chance to get out in the natural world and observe, collect, measure, test, basically do some of the best parts of science. And they're often in exotic places, having great adventures and making brand new discoveries. We came across a seafloor that we actually thought was covered in little rocks until we looked close and we realized the entire seafloor was covered in these eggs. I think there's about five million eggs in this one area that we, we went and surveyed. So today we'll meet and even ride along with scientists who were in the field this summer. From the depths of the unexplored ocean to alien landscapes right here on Earth to summer meadows filled with rare butterflies. Oh man, like little kid me would be so excited that I'm getting paid right now and that this is my job. All this today on Quirks and Quarks. We start today's show on the shores of Lake Huron at Ontario's Pinery Provincial Park. It's a popular site for campers with its beautiful forested landscape and kilometers of sandy dunes and beaches. But it's not just attractive to campers. Over the last couple of years, a small team of researchers has been wandering the park, butterfly nets in hand, looking for just the right habitat for mottled dusky wing butterflies. They're working to restore the insect to a landscape that was once its home. There she goes. Okay, she just flew out of the cage. There she goes. Okay, she landed on a goldenrod stem. What we don't want to see is butterflies flying right up into the sky and disappearing because that makes us think maybe they're leaving the release site entirely. And if that's happening, they would have a lower chance of finding one another and reproducing successfully. I'm Michelle Pauly. I'm a Master's of Science candidate in the Norris Lab at the University of Guelph, and I work with mottled dusky-wing butterflies. See if you can find that butterfly again. Let's have a look around. So the mottled dusky-wing is Ontario's only endangered species of butterfly, and since 2017, the recovery team has been working to uh, restore habitats throughout its former range in Ontario and reintroduce populations to formerly occupied locations. My name is Jessica Linton, and I'm a senior biologist at Natural Resource Solutions, Inc., and the chair of the Ontario Butterfly Species at Risk Recovery Team. The model duskywing is a small spreadwing skipper butterfly. It's brown and drab in appearance. Um, if you think about species of butterfly that you're familiar with, most of them are bright and colorful and charismatic, like the monarch butterfly. The model dusky wing is not those things, but it's unique in its own right. It's probably only about the size of a quarter, 
And it's very closely associated with its uh, larval food plant. So the plant that its uh, caterpillars eat. And that is in Ontario, New Jersey tea and prairie redroot. The habitat here at site A is part of the oak savanna ecosystem that you can find at Pinery. That means there are lots of tall grasses and open areas, a lot of flowering plants, more than you would see in a forest with a more closed canopy. There are a lot of open spaces where the sunlight reaches the ground. And the host plant for model duskywing actually um, needs quite a bit of sun exposure. Oh, and it is warm in here, like I thought it would be. Tall grass habitats, which include tall grass prairie, oak savanna, and oak woodland, used to cover a considerable amount of uh, land space in North America. And with the colonization of Europeans and clearing the land for agriculture, the majority of that habitat was wiped out. In Ontario, we have about 3% of its former range. So in Ontario, we have um, what I would consider to be four species of butterfly that were associated um, with oak savanna habitat. Three of those species, the Carner Blue, Frosted Elfin, and Eastern Perseus Duskywing, have all been extirpated from the province, meaning they no longer occur here because of habitat loss. The model duskywing was the only oak savanna species that was still hanging on in small disjunct populations, which is why the recovery team um, decided to focus its efforts on recovery of that particular species. Um, so the recovery team has been working with collaborators over um, many years to restore uh, oak savanna habitats on our landscape and the, the wild species that inhabit them. So our release point for these butterflies is at the bottom of a large sand dune in a big open area with some small oak saplings coming up. No overstory, lots of sun reaching the ground. The goldenrod starting to be in bloom and the bergamot flowers are out as well. They're a nice light purple color. So there's some good nectar sources here and also a good amount of New Jersey tea. So uh, the model duskywing should be able to thrive in this patch of habitat. Since 2018, the Cambridge Butterfly Conservatory has been captively rearing model duskywing. And this involves taking wild females, wild caught females from extant populations, bringing them into captivity and encouraging them through sunlight um, to lay eggs in captivity. And once those eggs are laid, uh, the lab goes about the process of rearing them out through their caterpillar stage. These are really vulnerable stages of the life cycle. So doing this in captivity allows us to have a much higher success rate in terms of the individuals that will make it to adulthood. So the captive rearing program involves rearing the caterpillars out um, to adulthood. And then we use those butterflies to release either back to their natal territory to replenish that population or at our reintroduction location in Pinery Provincial Park. So this summer for my field work, I was staying in a tent trailer in Pinery and my roommates were actually a bunch of model duskywing chrysalids. So every morning I would wake up and see if any of the butterflies inside of the enclosures had come out of their chrysalid and were ready to be released. 
So they were my roommates. We shared the space. Uh, they were very courteous roommates, and I have no complaints. On the best field days, my crew and I would load up at our campsite, grab our nets and our field supplies, our clipboards, and our Garmin units, and hop onto our bicycles and head over to our field site, which is just a short ride away. And biking with my field net over my shoulder was always a great feeling like, oh man, like little kid me would be so excited that I'm getting paid right now and that this is my job. There's a lot of insects out today. Lots of other small skippers, bees of all kinds. The cicadas are singing loudly. And the crickets are out as well. It's really warm in here. And really lovely. We do fairly often see animals we released here maybe two or three days ago, um, still using the same small area of habitat. And that is really promising because the places we're releasing them are some of the best pieces of habitat in the park. So what we really want is for them to stay here, find each other, mate, obviously, and um, lay their eggs. Since 2021, when we started reintroductions, we've had more success than others at some sites. It seems that some sites are more suitable than others, but we are seeing definite signs of success at Pinery, um, which include things like seeing males and females uh, mate in the wild, females laying eggs on their host plants, natural survivorship over the winter um, to produce succeeding generations. So those are, those are all really good signs that things are going well at Pinery. One of the best moments of the season um, was finding a mating pair of mottled duskywing. And we were surveying. We knew that we were near the peak of the flight period, so there were a lot of mottled duskywing around. And we actually found a mating pair. One of my field techs spotted them. And they were on a stalk of a plant, sitting still, and their abdomens were attached, so we know they were mating. And as we observed this mating pair, and we were so excited, other model duskywing butterflies actually were flying around. And we actually saw a second male come up to the mating pair and try to interrupt. And that was so thrilling, just knowing that the model duskywing were in the habitat at such a high density that they were encountering each other at, at this rate. And it was almost like overwhelming with model duskywing at that moment. We saw so many that we couldn't even capture them all. And it was like, oh man, like it's really working. They are here and they're using the habitat and they're having success finding each other. And that's the thing we want to see the most. This, as I mentioned, is Ontario's first reintroduction program for an endangered butterfly. And so this is kind of allowing us to develop a recipe for what we might think about doing for other species. So some of these other extirpated species, um, such as the frosted elfin that have been lost from Ontario, we now know a lot more about what we need to do to consider bringing that species back from um, the wild in the United States back to Canada. So her cage is open and now we'll just wait for her to exit when she's ready. Looks like she's ready to go. Oh, there she goes. <laughs> okay, so she landed on 
a New Jersey tea plant just under two meters away from her cage. Perfect. There she goes. Oh, she waited and then she really went for it. Huh. Good luck out there. What a fly. Michelle Pauly is a graduate student in the Norris Lab at the University of Guelph, and Jessica Linton is a senior biologist at Natural Resource Solutions, Inc., and the chair of the Ontario Butterfly Species at Risk recovery team. Not all field studies take place in fields, or even forests, tundra, and mountainsides. There are also urban field studies, and they come with a unique issue, as our next scientist found out, having to explain yourself to a curious public. My name is Aaron Aguirre. I'm a master's student in the Institute for Resources, Environment, and Sustainability at the University of British Columbia. And this entire summer, I have been studying the impacts of urbanization on bats in the Metro Vancouver region. So we know that bats utilize these urban spaces, they utilize anthropogenic structures, as well as utilize green spaces like parks. But we're unsure if there is sort of a certain critical threshold where we stop seeing those benefits, where you can have all of this habitat for them to roost in in buildings. But if you get rid of too much of the green space, then you may stop seeing those benefits uh, occur for the bats. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to see how bat activity changes across different gradients of urbanization. And the way I'm doing that essentially is twofold. I'm putting up acoustic detectors that pick up on their echolocation calls in green spaces and parks around Metro Vancouver and extending those outward uh, into more urban environments and to more natural environments. The research is going really well. Um, it's still ongoing, and um, we've had a lot of great experiences. You can imagine that being in urban environments and doing field work is a little bit different than being in forested areas. It's a lot more public. People have a lot more questions, and since these bats are using these man-made structures, there's a lot more engagement that we have to do with the public, and um, a little more, I guess, uh, marketing on behalf of the bats, because a lot of people aren't too terribly keen on bats, but once we start to explain their uh, their benefits and the threats that they, they face, people tend to warm up to them. But uh, we're in parks and we're putting up these large nets that are, are quite the scene, and a lot of people will just kind of walk up and, uh, and be curious about uh, what we're doing. If they see a bat in the net, it's either one of two ways they freak out a little bit or um, they're really interested and they want to get closer, uh, and we help kind of uh, safely engage them with bats from a distance. And then on the tracking side of things, well, we're essentially just walking around with a large antenna. Uh, it looks a bit strange. We have this three-pronged antenna that's attached to this box that's giving off just static. And uh, we're pointing that around through residential areas. So people have asked a lot of questions about that. 
all the way over to someone asking us if we're trying to contact the mothership because we're just sort of pointing an antenna around neighborhoods. But uh, it's all been good fun. A majority of the uh, of the interactions that we've had with the public has been very, very positive, which I love seeing. It means that myself and other bat biologists are doing a really great job of engaging the public with these creatures that provide us with a really good opportunity to learn about how humans and wildlife can coexist. I'm Aaron Aguide. I am a master's student uh, in the Institute for Resources, Environment, and Sustainability at UBC. The search for life on Mars isn't all happening on the Red Planet. This summer, that quest took astrobiologist Haley Sapers to remote Axel Heiberg Island in Nunavut. She was there to study methane being released from melting permafrost. That's because these Arctic methane seeps may have something in common with methane gas plumes that have been detected on Mars. In particular, she's investigating whether methane signals life on Mars, just as it does here on Earth. Dr. Sapers, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here to talk about life on Mars with you. <laughs> well, first, let's talk about life uh, up in Axel Heiberg Island. What's it like up there? Oh, it is such a marvelous place. It's a real privilege to be able to get up there. The scale is beyond belief. There are no trees or anything for you to judge distance, and it feels like you're walking into a painting. The mountains and the sun and the ice caps and the glaciers all surrounding you, you just walk into this natural cathedral that's really <laughs> quite surreal. Where is it actually located? So Axel Heiberg Island is located in um, northern Nunavut, and it's almost as far north as you can get. It's a small island just underneath Ellesmere Island. Boy, oh boy. Now that's way above treeline. Like that's, that's super high Arctic up there. It's definitely above the tree line. It's it's such a beautiful area. It's carpeted with wildflowers this time of year. So we have the purple Arctic sassafras, and a couple weeks after we arrive, the yellow Arctic poppies start to bloom. So it's really quite a colorful landscape with these bright orange red lichens as well. Uh, but there's nothing more than a couple of centimeters high. So definitely no bushes <laughs> or large flowers or trees. I, I've had the privilege of uh, visiting the far north a few times, and I found it difficult to judge distance because there are no trees. You can't tell how far away a, a mountain or, or a rock is because rocks look the same. Little rocks look like big rocks, and you can't tell. They really, really do. I had an experience like that myself. We were walking towards the sea ice, and in the distance, I see this giant rock, and I thought that would make a fantastic place to take a picture of the team. And so I said, okay, everybody, let's go over to that rock and climb up, and we'll take a silhouette picture across the sea ice. And I took one step further, and here's this tiny little pebble, about three centimeters big, right beside my right big toe. <laughs> well, tell me about these methane seeps that you were up there to study. Most methane on Earth is biogenic, meaning that it was produced at some point uh, by life on Earth. But there are also natural seeps of, of methane, and some of this natural methane that seeps out of the Earth's surface is made by microorganisms in the subsurface. But some of this methane is actually abiotic, so it's made by processes that, that don't involve life. And so we have two main seeps that we visit. 
And one of them is this abiotic source. So it doesn't have a lot to do with life. And the other seep is very biogenic. And so it's formed by, by microorganisms. And these seeps form in what we call perennial cold springs. And so when we think of hot springs, we think of these, you know, bubbling, beautiful places where we might be able to relax in. Um, but these springs are really, really salty. And because they're so salty, it actually depresses the freezing point. So the water that flows out of one of our springs is actually below zero. It's about minus four degrees Celsius, this water, and it is bubbling. But it's not bubbling because it's boiling. It's actually gas bubbles that are coming out of the surface. And in one of the spring, about 50% of the gas that comes out of these bubbles is, is methane. And then at the other spring site, it's a little bit warmer. The water is slightly above zero. And about 1% of the gas in these bubbles is methane. So they're quite different systems that really allow us to study and try to better understand where this methane is coming from in, in the Arctic and what are the type of microorganisms that might be either producing it or even eating it. Wow. Now I can understand how methane could come from microorganisms, but what's the other process that gives you methane that doesn't involve life? Ah, so another process that can give us methane um, are, can be water-rock reactions. And so if you take water and rock and you react them, you know, deep in the, in the Earth's surface, gases can be produced like methane. And because of global warming in the Arctic, we have the more release of methane, both perhaps from these methane clathrates, but also increased biological activity. And so a better understanding of these processes that could be releasing methane, especially with warming temperatures, is really critical to understanding how we might begin to mitigate or deal with this extra methane um, in the Canadian Arctic. Hmm. Okay, so those are methane seeps on Earth, some produced by life, some not produced by life. How does this compare with what's going on on Mars? So methane on Mars is this long-standing mystery. So methane was, was first detected in the late 1990s um, by ground-based telescopes, actually. And it was really surprising to see methane in, in the Martian atmosphere. And as far as we knew at that time, there weren't any processes that were capable of actively producing methane. And so the fact that we saw it at all was, was, was this mystery, you know, where is it coming from? Uh, when the Curiosity rover landed on Mars in, in 2012, we actually had on-the-ground measurements of methane. So now this rover is actually taking samples of the Martian atmosphere and is telling us, yep, nope, there's definitely methane here. And we really don't know what's producing that methane or where it's going. And because most of the methane on Earth is produced by biological activity, one of the things we're thinking about is, could this methane on Mars be a sign of potential life. And that's where these salty brines that we're studying in the Arctic come into play. Uh, so the conditions exist in the Martian subsurface that we can hypothesize. We think that there are these salty pockets of brine in the Martian subsurface. And just like there's microorganisms that live in these salty brine pockets in the high Canadian Arctic, there very well could be similar microorganisms in these potential brines in the Martian subsurface. And if these places exist, it's plausible that, yeah, there could be microorganisms producing methane there. Now, you mentioned that you were on Axel Heiberg Island for nearly a month in the high Arctic. Did you encounter any wildlife while you were there? 
We did. It was quite a boom year for lemmings. And because there were lots of lemmings, there were lots of jaggers. Now, jaggers are these um, pretty aggressive birds. They're about the size and similar color to a seagull. And they really, really don't like drones. And so we'd be using <laughs> drones to take some pictures of our of our spring sites. And all of a sudden, there'd be four or five Jaggers that would come out of nowhere and start dive bombing us and dive bombing our drones. So we always had to have somebody on the lookout for Jaggers because they were pretty aggressive and they really, really didn't want us there. Now, you were up there with a team of scientists. So uh, was it something like a summer camp for you? It really is. I mean, I love fieldwork. It brings me back to my summer camp days as a child. And it's it's quite a playground. So so we go up there and, you know, I might be having lunch with a botanist or telling field stories with a glaciologist. So it really is a marvelous buffet of, of, of science up there. Dr. Sapers, thank you for telling us about your adventure. Thank you very much. It's been wonderful to talk with you today. Dr. Haley Sapers is an adjunct professor of astrobiology from York University in Toronto. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, And for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Bob McDonald, and you're listening to Quirks and Quarks and our Summer in the Field special. The west coast of British Columbia sits on the boundary of two enormous tectonic plates, the North American plate and the Pacific plate under the ocean. But in addition, off the B.C. coast, the sea bottom is broken up into several smaller plates. And as these plates shift, they create unique deep-sea ecosystems that are home to abundant marine life. Deep-sea mountain chains, underwater volcanoes, and icy slabs of methane gas. That's what Dr. Cherise Dupree and a team of Canadian marine researchers explored on a two-week expedition this summer aboard the Canadian Coast Guard oceanographic ship, the John P. Tully. So we are just heading down for a first dive at Explorer Seamount. Wow, that was pretty awesome. Did anyone else see that? That was a, that was a Humboldt squid. We're going to go to cold seats. Let's just keep... Dr. Dupree is the head of the Deep Sea Ecology Program with Fisheries and Oceans Canada and an adjunct professor in the Department of Biology at the University of Victoria. Hi, welcome to our program. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. So where did the expedition take you this summer? We do take the John P. Telly all over. Um, We go from the southern tip of Vancouver Island all the way to the northern point of uh, Haida Gwaii and hundreds of kilometers uh, offshore. Well, tell me about the John P. Tully and the equipment that you were using to explore the depths. It's like a floating city. It's got everything you need, a cafeteria, a gym, uh, you know, a place to go to sleep. Um, and then we loaded up with mapping equipment, with submarines, with oceanographic equipment that we deploy. Um, and this equipment can extend from the ship and go all the way down to three and a half kilometers into the ocean. Wow. Now, you mentioned a submarine. Tell me about that. So people don't go inside 
this particular type of submarine. It's a robot and we go into a control room that's on the ship. Um, it's like a, a virtual control room. It's something like you'd see, maybe, or you'd imagine for NASA. And uh, we control the robot and we fly it in real time around these volcanoes, these hydrothermal vents, while we're sitting uh, in the ship looking at all the screens, looking at all the sensors. Um, and that way the robot can stay down just indefinitely doing science around the clock while we swap out pilots and, and scientists. Well, give me a sense of what you saw when you get down there. What kind of an environment is it? It's an incredible environment hidden below the ocean. It's actually not too far from uh, what you would think of as really cool geological features on land. You have valleys, you have hot springs, you have mountains and volcanoes. It's just that it's hidden. But when we can take a submarine down there and turn on the lights for the first time, because of course this is all shrouded in darkness, um, it's just the most beautiful, untouched forms of land that you've ever seen. Well, what were some of the unusual life forms that you saw down there? Every time we go into the ocean, we see animals that even us seasoned scientists can't identify. It's like another world down there. So many species that are new to science, alien-like. They kind of look like something you might see on the beach, but maybe they don't have eyes or maybe they have some extra limbs that you weren't expecting. Um, and then, of course, this, this past summer, we had um, this remarkable interaction with some giant deep-sea skates down uh, at the bottom of the ocean. Skates? What are they like? They're like manta rays. A lot of people can picture what a manta ray is, like from the tropics, um, a large animal with wings that kind of flies through the ocean. So skates are a very close relative. And in our waters, um, deep, deep down, three kilometers down, we have these white Pacific skates. Now, this environment, it, it's totally dark, right? There's no light down there and it's uh, under high pressure. What, what, what are the skates doing? The skate uh, appears to be traveling the ocean abyss uh, everywhere from Canada down to um, Australia and New Zealand, across to Japan and China. What they do on their day to day, we don't know for certain. But where we saw them, it actually looks like we have discovered their nursery ground. So we discovered where the skate is going to, to lay its eggs and create the next generation of skates. Wow. What are skate eggs like? What do they look like? Skate eggs are actually nicknamed mermaid purses. <laughs> I don't know if that helps describe what it looks like, but um, they they look like little, apparently, uh, handbags. They've got little handles to them. Um, the handles are actually hooks and they're really good for holding onto the seafloor. But it's a, it's a small pouch that has a single skate inside of it. And while usually they're very small, maybe the size of your fist, because everything is larger than life in the deep sea, these skate eggs that we found were um, a foot, a foot and a half long, wow. which is a giant by any measure. And their eggs, how many were there? That's the thing we weren't expecting to find is uh, sometimes you come across, you know, a, a dozen that were deposited by a single skate. We came across a seafloor that we actually thought was covered in little rocks until we looked close and we realized the entire seafloor was covered in these eggs. I think there's about five million eggs in this one area that we, we went and surveyed. Five million? No, I know. Holy cow. What, what, what is it about this area that makes it so popular for skate eggs? We simply don't know. We just, you know, we're just starting to discover it. But what we think is happening and what completely surprised us on our last expedition was as we were flying over, surveying this area, 
counting five million eggs, we saw something strange in the water. We saw the water acting a little bit weird. It looked like it was shimmering. And immediately we pulled out the thermometer off the ROV. We put it on the ground, which was, I haven't mentioned, but what we thought was an inactive volcano. And we measured heat. And that just sent everybody into cheers and a little bit of tears too, because we realized immediately what the what it meant. But what we think is drawing the skates to this area is this, what we thought was an inactive volcano is active. It's putting out heat. It's putting out warm water around it. And it's providing a safe nursery ground for these eggs to be deposited. And that heat actually helps things in the deep sea develop faster, You don't have to be an egg for so long. And when you hatch, you're a stronger skate for having sat in the warm water. It's absolutely incredible. Wow. So are these the uh, hydrothermal vents that we hear so much about? Very, very similar. Um, Just slightly different. The hydrothermal vents are superheated water, 400 degrees Celsius, caused by magmatic chambers deep in the Earth's surface. This is more like a low temperature bath. (laughs) This is a volcano that is putting out hot springs where you really want to sit in it. I don't want to sit in 400 degree water. I don't think the eggs do too. But, you know, a little bit lukewarm water turns your uh, incubation period from four years into maybe two years. And... You, you times that by 5 million eggs and you get a new generation of skates in half the time. So it's sort of like a hot tub at the bottom of the ocean, an oasis in a way. <laughs> it absolutely is. And it explains a lot of other weird things that we noticed about this area. Um, life in abundance, like we just didn't expect. And now that we figured out that it's actually a heat source, a lot of I don't knows make a lot more sense right now. So, so what was the, um, the most memorable event for you? We were going about our dive, flying up the volcano, and one of these large skates came into view. And uh, immediately we realized its behavior was like nothing we'd seen before. It was diving to the seafloor and arching its back, and its tail was very high. And as we came closer, uh, we realized that we were witnessing for the first time ever first time documented in science, um, a deep sea skate actually laying its eggs. I cannot believe this. I can't believe it either. Pacific white skate laying an egg. Laying an egg. It's doing, it's happening. Oh, it's happening. It's happening. It's happening. It's happening. (laughs) Come on. It was amazing to see. We stayed with it for hours. We documented the entire process. It was so intimate. Wow. Actually, actually giving birth. Yes. Yeah. Um, and in the deep sea, I, we just we don't spend enough time down there to get these intimate moments with animals like this um, until recent. And, and now we're getting a glimpse into their actual lives. And it was one of the best moments of my scientific career. I, I feel like I'm interviewing an astronaut who just came back from an <laughs> alien planet. <laughs> yeah, we joke. Well, deep sea science is like a... Rocket science, it's just a little bit harder. What's the biggest threat to these deep sea environments? To our deep sea environments of our coast would have to be climate change. Because we can establish marine protected areas and have spatial areas that we keep fishing out of, that's in the realm of, hey, we can control that. But climate change is this 
monster that is coming for the deep sea that is outside of my toolkit to control. I can't put up a fence. We've seen our waters lose 15% of its oxygen in the last 60 years. And uh, imagine 15% of the oxygen you breathe being taken away from your everyday going about. So I'd have to say climate change for the oxygen, for the ocean acidification, for the change in the food web and the change in distribution of animals. We usually think of that as in terms of the surface. You don't think about the deep ocean being affected by the, the climate. Yeah. Dr. Dupree, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me on. Dr. Cherise Dupree is the head of the Deep Sea Ecology Program at Fisheries and Oceans Canada. The natural world is unpredictable, especially in the context of climate change, and that means it's essential to have a backup plan when it comes to the summer field season. But a scientist from Saskatchewan found that even her backup plan needed a backup plan. Hello, I'm Dr. Emily Jenkins. I'm a veterinary microbiologist at the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon. And I had the pleasure this summer of spending some time in various fields and valleys and along dog parks looking for ticks. I have a wide research program and a real focus on the Arctic. And so our plan A is always every summer to go up to a field site in central Nunavut called Carrick Lake, where folks have been going for over 35 years to monitor the the largest snow goose colony in probably the world. Um, And the other great thing about the colony is that it is hosts a probably the largest and most stable Arctic fox population in the world. And that's a study species for myself. So that would always been our plan A, that this year for the first time in 35 years, the field crew went up in late May, and they were utterly unable to land because they take a twin otter on skis, we rely on being able to land on snowpack and on thoroughly frozen lake ice. And instead, there was so much meltwater, it was not deemed safe to land. So the whole field season had to cancel which was disappointing, especially as it's been over three years since people have been able to access the site due to COVID closures. So plan B, very graciously, our colleagues in the Northwest Territories suggested that we check out a site at Daring Lake, which is an amazing research station. Um, So off we went and we're hoping to find fox dens, but instead it was a really low rodent year. And when we have low rodents, we don't have a lot of foxes because they eat rodents. So instead of catching foxes and rodents, we instead caught a lot of mosquitoes, which is also good. We study mosquitoes and their viruses, but um, but yeah, that was a bit disappointing. And then the other challenge with the Northwest Territories site was that we ended up leaving our rodent samples there and the camp was evacuated due to wildfires. So we don't actually even know if our samples made it out or if the camp is still standing at moment as a result of these wildfires. So our plan C, plan C for Saskatchewan, We have several sentinel sites as part of the Canadian Lyme Disease Research Network. And as part of that, we do regular tick drags. Um, That sounds kind of strange. Uh, It looks kind of strange too. We will take pieces of white flannel about the size of a pillowcase. We'll attach that to a dowling and we'll drag that through the brush or through the tall grass in places where we might find ticks. Okay, Tyler, so you can see this is not an American dog tick as it's inornate 
and it does not have any festoons. Remember those folds at the posterior end of the abdomen. The primary reason we do it in Saskatchewan is to determine if we have populations of the black-legged tick or the BLT, as I like to call it. The main motivation in Saskatchewan is that we do not have established populations of BLTs, but we're aware that that's probably likely to change. And so the exciting thing that happened for us this year is that we did actually find the very first BLT in over a decade of dragging in this province. But where we found it was the surprise. It wasn't next to the established populations in Manitoba in the southeastern part of the province where we'd kind of always been focusing our efforts. It was actually much further north and in the center of Saskatchewan in a place that we just added this year on spec that might have, we thought, populations of migratory birds that could have brought it up with them. In comparison, it looks like almost softer in comparison to the like the American dog tick too. So the finding of the BLT was quite a production for us. Um, there was a bit of disbelief, um, a lot of double checking under a microscope eventually just to very much confirm that we were looking at a BLT. When we mentioned it to public health people, they were a little less happy about our finding. And the good news there is that we only found one, which doesn't mean that we have established populations yet, but it probably means if we found one, there's more than that out there in that region. The site that we were dragging in in Prince Albert in an area we, we didn't expect to be our, our hotspot. Yeah, because the posterior is in the American dog tip, right? That's right. And then finally, you'll see the mouth parts are comparatively very long. I'm Dr. Emily Jenkins, a professor of veterinary microbiology at the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Archaeology is painstaking work that requires extreme patience and care in uncovering sometimes fragmentary evidence of ancient civilizations. That was what Christine Davidson expected this summer during the six weeks she spent at a site in southern Italy. But what she didn't expect was for her careful work to be interrupted by hungry and aggressive wild animals. Ms. Davidson teaches archaeology at Trent University in Peterborough and is assistant director of excavation for the Metaponto Archaeological Project. Ms. Davidson, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Oh, thank you very much. First of all, take me to Metaponto in southern Italy. What's it like there? So Metaponto, it's a beautiful modern city now, right on the coast. If you imagine the boot of Italy, we're right on the instep. And Metaponto has a lovely beach, but it also has a wonderful assortment of archaeological sites, including sanctuaries and an urban center that has been under excavation for several decades now. What were you actually investigating at the site? My personal research is investigating these rural communities that developed outside of the urban center of ancient Metaponto. Uh, And I do this by looking at rural sanctuaries. And one of these rural sanctuaries is a place called Inquarinata Greca. And that's where we're doing uh, excavation uh, currently. And we're finding lots of material from the Greek colonial settlement nearby. And we're also finding a lot of 
indigenous wear, indigenous Italian, uh, they were known as the Enotrians. And so we're finding Enotrian vessels uh, as well. And those uh, are dated to before the seventh century. So you've mentioned Greeks, but it's in Italy. So there's different groups of people. Tell, tell me about those people. Who are they? Sure. So uh, we are investigating an area of what we call Magna Graecia. And Magna Graecia just means Greater Greece. And it refers to these Greeks that around the ninth century just expanded outward from mainland Greece and settled in areas along Asia Minor and into the Black Sea and, and uh, also in Italy and Sicily. And so Metaponto was settled by Achaeans uh, from the Peloponnese. So think kind of neighbors to the Spartans. And they settled this great city center and then also an expansive countryside of farmsteads and production facilities and sanctuaries. Okay. Now, now you mentioned that the site was occupied in the ninth century. That's, uh, I presume that's BCE, before current era. It yeah. is. Yeah, it's old. Uh, very old. Well, that, <laughs> that's older than the Roman Empire, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. If we think about the Roman Empire kind of uh, having its beginnings around 756 uh, BCE, um, we're falling even before that. So, uh, yeah, very early. <laughs> now, you mentioned the Greek sanctuaries in the region. What are those? Uh, so the Greek sanctuaries of the countryside could actually have multiple purposes. It could have a uh, more sacred purpose. You know, the religious life for the Greeks was very much part and parcel of, of social life. Uh, and so frequenting these these sanctuaries was just part of what you did on, you know, weekly, monthly basis or whatever it, it might be. Uh, and so you go there, you make these offerings. Uh, that could be, you know, a burnt animal sacrifice. That could be the actual destruction of a vessel. Um, you know, if you break a vessel upon the ground ritually, uh, then that could be a way to perform cultic activity. And so these rural sanctuaries are areas where that happened, but then there's a social aspect connected with that as well, where, where groups of people would kind of congregate uh, out in the countryside. So it was kind of a sacred site. Exactly. Yeah, a sacred site. And we know that because we have so many beautiful decorative pieces that have been discovered. And, and just like modern day, you know, you don't keep these hyper decorative pieces to then be used. It's, it's, you know, it's the classic, your grandmother keeps the nice china in the, in the cupboard. Um, that's for special occasions. So we're finding where that was used for special occasions uh, at the site. So what is it about that location in southern Italy that made it so special? It's a special area because it's it's very fertile. Uh, even in modern day, we see a lot of agricultural activity. Um, and that is a you know segue into why it is special for us today as archaeologists is because it has been cultivated uh, by agriculture. We have a lot of open space. You know, it hasn't been urbanized where all of the finds are underneath buildings that we can't actually access. And so they're just being turned up out in these fields. And so we can perform field survey and actually find the locations for various sites out in the countryside of Metaponto. And, and that's really unique for an ancient site. Usually it's, it's highly urbanized and, and difficult to access. Wow. <laughs> if these uh, artifacts are out in agricultural fields, are they getting churned up by the mechanization of agriculture itself? They absolutely are, and that's how we're actually able to locate them. If it was just kind of left alone, they would be under the ground and we wouldn't see them. Uh, but these machines are coming through, and they're cutting through these sites and bringing some of them up to the surface. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, archaeology is not without its challenges, but nothing quite like what you and your colleagues faced. Uh, tell me what happened. Well... 
more or less, it turns out we're not the only ones that are excavating on that plateau. We have a bit of a, a bore problem in the area. The Italians call it Cingale. And the boars there are 100 to 300 pound animals, incredibly fast. I think I read at one point that they can run up to, you know, 50 kilometers an hour. They're incredibly fast. Uh, they've got these huge you know, eight inch tusks and uh, they're mostly active at night. And it turns out there's a lot of wild onions on our plateau. And so every night they would go up there and they would dig for these onions and leave these little pits all around our uh, our trench, our excavation trench. And, and we'd have to dodge them walking in uh, to site. And then also make sure that they weren't actually on the site with us because they're very territorial. And we had a few scares <laughs> while we were digging this summer. A few scares? What happened? Well, one of the mornings, there was a little baby boar that ran right across the trench. And of course, when you see a baby, the first thought that you have is, well, where is its mother? Uh, and so we all booked it for the cars, uh, thinking that we could at least shelter in there. Uh, so luckily, no actual altercations with these boars, but pretty scary uh, that you're seeing them <laughs> constantly. Spotted. She jumps. Spotted. No, no, it's not. So when will the work at Metaponto be finished? Great question. When it stops producing such interesting material, I would say. This is a place that's seen excavation since, you know, the 80s. Uh, so it's, it's a site of high interest, and I don't see a stopping anytime soon. Well, Ms. Davison, thank you so much for telling us of your summer adventure in science. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me on. Christine Davidson teaches archaeology at Trent University in Peterborough and is assistant director of excavation for the Metaponto Archaeological Project. Nearly three in four Canadians live in urban areas, and if you're one of them, you know firsthand the importance of green spaces in cities. Apart from the psychological relief from the concrete jungle, they help cool down city streets on hot days. And plants growing in these spaces provide habitat and nourishment for many non-human urban dwellers. And some of these green spaces have another important task, to filter out harmful chemicals washed off the city roads by the rain. This summer, Quirks and Quarks visited a Vancouver neighborhood with the scientists who designed sidewalk rain gardens that help protect salmon. Over here we have the inlet, so it's receiving uh, rainwater runoff from this whole street. Um, and then water will keep flowing down into the rain garden um, and into the plants where it gets soaked up. Hi, my name is Sylvie Sprackman. I'm a senior water resources engineer at the City of Vancouver. A rain garden is an engineered system for receiving rainwater runoff. Um, it's situated a lot lower than the surrounding landscapes so that it can receive that water. Um, and then it uh, slowly soaks up that water uh, and treats it so that it's not going to the regular sewer system, which could contribute to con combined sewer overflows, as well as uh, bad water quality in our, in our stormwater. Uh, hi, yeah, my name is Tim Rogers. I am a postdoctoral fellow at the University of British Columbia uh, in the Institute for Resources, Environment and Sustainability and the Department of uh, Civil Engineering. 
For this project, we're looking at a chemical that is called 6-PPD quinone. Uh, so 6-PPD quinone is actually produced um, as a transformation or degradation product um, as a chemical that's used in car tires called 6-PPD. Recently, uh, it was discovered by some researchers at the University of Washington that 6-PPD quinone is extremely toxic to especially coho salmon, but also a number of other salmonid species. So we think it might be somewhere around like the second most toxic chemical to fish that people have ever sort of found. Uh, and it's produced all the time uh, on our roadways uh, from these tire wear particles and then also from the uh, tires themselves. So it washes off of our roadways during these big rain events or even small rain events sometimes. Uh, and then it goes directly into these sort of salmon bearing streams. Uh, and once it gets into a salmon bearing stream, there have been reports of up to, you know, 40 to 60% of the coho salmon dying uh, sort of after exposure to this toxic road runoff, which is caused by this chemical 6-PPD quinone. So the way that the system works for capturing contaminants um, is essentially uh, the contaminants come in and the water will be infiltrating through the soil. Um, it's sort of going through the small spaces and you have uh, what's known as diffusion across the between the soil and the organic carbon. So basically think compost uh, that's in the soil. So the soil that we use in rain gardens uh, is a mixture of usually uh, it's like sand and compost. So the sand makes it so it drains really fast and the compost makes it so that it captures these chemicals. So the, the compound comes through and it absorbs to the soil and that captures it and prevents it from going out into the streams. So it kind of acts like a big Brita filter for our fish by filtering out all those compounds that we don't want from the rainwater and the stormwater before it gets into the uh, streams with the salmon. So we hired a water truck and the water truck came in and uh, dumped 14,000 liters of water uh, at the inlet to our system um, and it dumped it quite slowly so uh, we were trying to imitate what would be uh, sort of like an average uh, calm rainfall event in Vancouver uh, and then we had a rain barrel um, that we mixed water and our chemicals and the fluorescent dye all together um, and then at one point we uh, dumped the rain barrel all at once so that we sort of had a like spike of uh, known mass and concentration going in at that one time. And then the samples went back to the lab and we analyzed the samples um, to see what the concentrations of our contaminant is. One, two, three, four, five. And what we found uh, was that the system removed greater than 98% of the 6-PPD quinone uh, during this experiment that we had put in. It was really exciting to see that, um, you know, we, we designed these rain gardens for uh, improving water quality um, and to see that it could work for like a wide range of contaminants, you know, above and beyond what we expected them to be able to do. So our next steps with this project are we really want to see where the best places to put these systems are. So we're trying to look uh, by taking some samples and measurements sort of across the metro Vancouver area uh, and also by doing some uh, different modeling and looking at, you know, where big roadways are intersecting with these streams that have salmon uh, and trying to find where would be the best places to put these systems uh, and places where we can have the biggest impact on protecting salmon where you might be getting those really big runoff from big roads and highways going into these streams. Dr. Timothy Rogers is a postdoctoral fellow in the Institute for Resources, Environment and Sustainability and the Department of Civil Engineering at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Sylvie Sprockman is a senior water resources engineer with the City of Vancouver.
And that's it for Quirks and Quarks this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca. Or just go to the contact link on our webpage at cbc.ca slash quirks, where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. It's free from the App Store or Google Play. Quirks and Quarks was produced by Olsi Sorokina, Sonia Biting, and Mark Crawley. Our senior producer is Jim Lebens. I'm Bob McDonald. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.